Good morning. Our sermon text comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. This is found in your pew Bible on pages 809 through 810. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those of the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much. We see uh, an amazing note of grace and kindness and strength coming from you uh, to your children in this passage. And we desire to receive those things again and afresh this morning. Oh, Lord, you sent your son to the world who was himself the salt of the earth who was the light of the world and is. And now we pray that above all things in these minutes and above all lessons and uh, great truths from this text that you might be pleased to pour out upon us, that the greatest one that you would give is a crystal clear vision of who Jesus Christ is. We want to see him. We want to know him truly. We pray that for those who are already his disciples. And we pray that for those as well who have not yet bowed the knee uh, to Christ. We pray that this would be the day of their salvation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I, uh, um, I joked to Maria. I said, you know, it's a little daunting to preach a sermon that Jesus preached first. Uh, <laughs> that's always true. Now, last week I said, uh, when we were together, I said, uh, when I look at the first 16 verses of Matthew's gospel, uh, excuse me, the first 16 verses of the Sermon on the Mount, 
chapter 5, and I think about what Jesus is doing in those 16 verses, what jumps out at me is that he's describing for his disciples these two uh, radically transformed relationships that he gives to his disciples. And the first is a new relationship with God, and that's what we looked at last week. We thought about that mostly through the lens of the Beatitudes, verses uh, 3 through 12. And I said that the second major uh, relationship that Jesus is talking about in these verses that he gives to his disciples, a new relationship, a transformed relationship, is the relationship of his disciples to the world. And that's what our focus is going to be this morning. But, you know, the way you think about the Beatitudes affects how you understand both those relationships. And it's interesting. Everybody has a grid that they view the Beatitudes through. And if you, depending on how you view the Beatitudes, you're going to come out with radically different conclusions about what your relationship is to God and how you, how you get reconciled to God and, and, and how you live before God. And you're going to have a radically different vision of how you're supposed to relate to the world once you become a Christian. And so I was trying to think of an uh, analogy this week to try to illustrate the different approaches that you could take to the Beatitudes that would result in massively different uh, views of your relationship with God and your relationship with the world. And so let me pose the question to you this way. When you read the Beatitudes, friends, do you think of them as a ladder or a waterfall? Is Jesus setting, when he sets the Beatitudes out before us, which are daunting, right? If you're even slightly honest about who you are. Uh, do you think of the Beatitudes, as you process them like Jesus is setting out a ladder for us to climb? Or is he describing a waterfall? Well, let me explain what I mean. If the Beatitudes are a ladder... If this is a ladder that Jesus is giving us that we have to ascend in order to be qualified in each one of those Beatitudes, you could think about it like a rung that you have to go up in order to be qualified uh, to be accepted by God, to be a member of his kingdom, to gain God's approval and to maintain God's approval. There's no hope. Let's just be honest about that. No hope. Because none of us has within him or herself that kind of life. And in the process, if you think about it as a ladder, it means you're going to be climbing. As you climb up to God and you think you can do this, you're by definition climbing away from the world, right? There's no hope for the world either. But you see, the very first beatitude is full of hope. It's full of hope. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The very first thing that Jesus says deconstructs that whole ladder vision. That whole vision of living before God as though somehow I were capable out of my own life to produce a righteousness that would qualify me to be approved by the holy and high King of Heaven. That is such a destructive falsehood. It's dishonoring to God. It destroys hope for humanity. And the very first beatitude just says, get rid of that thinking. 
Because Jesus pronounces His blessing on the poor in spirit. Not those who can climb, but those who know that they can't and haven't. It's so beautiful. The Gospel is so counterintuitive. Jesus is not this moralistic teacher. He Himself is the waterfall. He has come down from heaven. Not as a moral teacher to give us this ladder, but the the King of heaven Himself who's come down, who's been poured out of the heart of the Father into the world so that He can bring the kingdom of heaven to those who in themselves have no qualification for it except their need and their honest repentance before God, that there's nothing in them that deserves the kingdom of heaven, that people who be honest when they look at this king and they look at his righteousness and they look at his work and they look at his goodness will be freed to say, I have no claim on you, God. I live by grace and your mercy. I have no claim except through Christ. It's a wonderful world that the gospel creates. And it rescues us from any kind of illusions. Because ultimately, we saw last week, the Beatitudes are, are really Jesus' self-portrait, right? They're the description of the King of Heaven who has come down, been sent from the Father to those who need who need God. Such a gift. And you notice in that image, what's, what I like about that image is that it comes down, this waterfall comes down upon us. And you notice, you know, if you ever watch the waterfall, waterfalls aren't like showers. They don't go into a drain. Rivers come out of waterfalls. Right? And so, Rather than climbing away from the world, which is what we would be doing if we thought about the Beatitudes as a ladder, because let's be honest, those are values that the world has. So if you pursue them, you're going away from the world. Instead, if we think about the Beatitudes as this great waterfall of grace, it starts with the person and work of Jesus coming down from heaven and then, you know, hits us and transforms us and drenches us. This King of heaven who would be our servant How can that force of grace not push us out into the world? And I think that's what Jesus is describing here. This great change that has come from above, down upon us, brought by Jesus, the good news of the gospel of the kingdom for those who are poor in spirit, and how the momentum of that wonder is meant and intended and should produce in us, should propel us outward. And so that's why in verses 13 through 16, Jesus now turns to the relationship of his disciples to the world. And so we're going to look at three things about that uh, new relationship with the world. First, that Jesus calls us to be in the world. Second, that Jesus calls us to be against the world. And third, that Jesus calls his disciples to be for the world. And one of the things that we'll find here, just as we find it everywhere else we look at the gospel, the gospel never produces a simplistic analysis of something. So if you came in here thinking, hey, to be a Christian means you can just totally, uncritically embrace the world. Jesus is going to overturn your apple cart. If, on the other hand, you thought, listen, what it means to be a Christian is to stand against the world and to repudiate the world. 
Jesus is going to overturn your apple cart. Gospel's never simplistic. So let's think first about our call uh, from Jesus to be in the world. If you look at verses 13 through 16, one of the things that's very interesting without any explanation is Jesus, you can tell Jesus just assumes and is commanding and commissioning that his disciples, those who follow him, those who've repented, will uh, be involved in the world. And there are three points I want to look at. Uh, with you under this heading. The first is Jesus has a vision. He's operating from a vision of the world. He's operating from a vision of his disciples and he's operating uh, from a vision for his disciples. It's important if we're going to understand verses 13 through 16 to first think about how Jesus thinks about the world. What does he see when he looks at our world? This is really Jesus's diagnosis of the need. And so you could you could think about it this way. You could look at the Beatitudes and you could say, okay, when Jesus looks at the world, what does he see? Does he see a world that uh, rejoices in poverty of spirit? No, he sees a world that rejoices in pride of spirit. Right. Does he see a world that mourns for its sin? That mourns, that grieves over its sin? No, he sees a world that exalts its sin. Right. That makes heroes. Out of notorious sinners. Does he see a world that values meekness? No, right? He sees a world that values and rewards self-elevation and self-preoccupation and self-promotion. Does he see a world where people hunger and thirst for righteousness? No. He sees a world where people have insatiable appetites for unrighteousness. Does he see a world that loves mercy, that loves to dole out mercy? Or does he see a world that traffics in harshness and cruelty? Does Jesus, when he looks at the world, see a world that that is pure in heart and longs to see God? Or does he see a world that longs to hide from God and to conceal the truth about God in every way that it can? Does he see a world of peacemakers or does he see a world that insists on its own rights and that is unwilling to compromise, that, that, that admires people who take no prisoners? You know, there's something really wrong when in professional sports a guy can get ahead by hurting people. And we watch it. It doesn't sound like the Beatitudes to me. Does Jesus see a world where people are willing to be persecuted for righteousness sake by aligning themselves with God? No, I don't think he does. When Jesus looks at the world, he sees deterioration and he sees brokenness and decay. He sees a world that needs salt. When he looks at the world, he sees blindness and darkness. He sees a world that needs light. And the only thing more amazing than Jesus's, you know, implicit vision of the world and his understanding of the world that he has entered is what he says about his disciples. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing what he says about his disciples. He looks at his disciples. These guys. And let's remember, we remember who they are and we remember where they are in the story. And we know 
their resumes are pretty sparse up to this point, and we know from the rest of the gospel, it's not like they're going to be world beaters, right? And he looks at these guys, and he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That earth, that world. Unbelievable. Now, we, we're, not, we're not electrified by these images because we aren't first century people. You know, for us, salt is just this little flavor enhancement and most of us try to avoid it, right? And we take light for granted because we can turn light on whenever we want. Both of these things were much bigger deals in Jesus' culture. And in fact... What Jesus is saying, salt was not just a flavor enhancer, but in the first century was a preservative. It arrested decay. We know that about salt, but that's not just the main reason we use it. And light, what in light? Light enables sight of all kind, all kinds. Now, we, we have so much light, we take it for granted. But in Jesus' day, to have light meant that you could see. And sight was precious, and so... Light was always associated with truth. And Jesus is saying, as salt is a preservative, as salt is an enhancer of what it comes into contact with, so you, my disciples, because you're my disciples, are that. And as light reveals things and enables sight of all kind, so you are that in the world. Amazing. Just think about three implications with me of those statements that he's saying about his disciples. And the first is this, is that these are presently true. This is our present, not just them, but us. These are, these are statements that Jesus is making, not just for that initial group of disciples, but for all of his disciples. So if you're a Christian this morning, if you have repented of your sins and have followed Christ and are following him as the king of heaven, then these things are true of you already by virtue of that relationship. And that the first point is that these are your present identity. He says you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Do you feel that? Feel the present emphasis? This is not something that Jesus is saying. And one day, disciples, if you stick with me, if you stick with me, you will be the salt of the earth. You will be the light of the world. You know, if you just pray enough and you give enough and you sacrifice enough, you will grow in. It's not what he says. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I am so encouraged by that. Because again, remember who these disciples are. These are ordinary guys. These are very average people. And they are people who fail a lot. Their faith is weak. And Jesus knows that. He's going to have to, he's going to, have to corral them back in over and over and over again. And yet he says to them, has... His view of them. You see, see what you see. What this is about. This is about how Jesus thinks about you, my Christian brother and sister. This is how Jesus regards you, not how you regard yourself. He's not saying, and if you follow me, you'll feel like the salt of the earth and like the. Uh. Uh-uh. Uh. 
This is how Jesus regards you objectively. And he says these, these things are presently true about you. They're already true about you because of your relationship to me. And it's not because you're some great shakes. It's not because I chose you and that I looked at, at Peter and, and Andrew and said, ah, oh, there are some salty men. Or James and John said, there's guys full of light. I'll pick them. No. It's not the pots that make them the salt of the earth or the light of the world. It's the treasure in the pot. Right? It's because Jesus is the salt of the earth. Because Jesus is the light of the world. So these things are presently true, friends. And so we must not disqualify ourselves when Jesus has already qualified us. But not only are they our present identity, they're our corporate identity. Uh, We don't see it in the English, but the you in both of these statements in verses 13 and 14 is a plural you. And he doesn't say you are the lights of the world and you are the salts of the earth. He says you collectively are the light of the world. You collectively are the salt of the earth. And so Jesus is telling us how he thinks ultimately about his church It's a vision of a community of his disciples who together are the salt and are the light. Yes, no question about it. Jesus regards his individual disciples as salty, right? And as and as light. But there is this corporate edge to what he's saying that should awaken in us a deeper appreciation for what it means to be part of a visible church that Jesus is assembling. To be Jesus' disciple, here's a window, right? To be Jesus' disciple. The operating assumption among American evangelicals is that it is possible to have a relationship with Jesus and not have a relationship with his church. I want you to know that that assumption is not one that God shares. It's not in the Bible. Jesus doesn't teach it. None of the apostles teach it. So if it doesn't come from God, don't treat it like it's safe. Jesus assumes that you'll be embedded in a community. And the third thing about this is that not only is it our present identity, not only is it our corporate identity, but it's our essential identity. And here's what I mean by that. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, he does something very important because the you is emphatic. You and only you is the sense. And notice he says, you and only you are the light of the world, are the salt of the earth. You see, Jesus, again, has this very high view of his people He's saying that there is no other source for this light that the world needs and the salt that the world needs. You are it. And again, not because there is anything super about the disciples. They are clay pots. We are clay pots. But the question is, is the Jesus who is in us, who resides in His disciples by the Spirit, is He the essential need of the world? And of course, the answer is yes. 
And so Jesus intends for his disciples who are abiding in him and in whom his spirit dwells. He intends us as his people to be his gift to the world. We're essential to the world and to the world's welfare. You can already see that this momentum will not allow you to repudiate the world, will it? So if you have a compound mentality of what it means to live a Christian life, to go in a bunker, it's unbiblical. It's not Jesus' vision. It may be some other guy's vision, but it ain't Jesus's. Ultimately, friends, these things, Jesus' strategy, right, is, is twofold. It's His life for the world, in the world, and for the world. And it's His life through His disciples into the world. Because Jesus is the salt of the earth. Jesus is the one who has rubbed Himself into the world. Jesus is the one who hasn't just passed over the world, but He's come into contact with the world. Jesus is the one who's embedded himself in our humanity. And aren't you thankful that he's done that? Don't you rejoice? Aren't you glad that Jesus has never lost his tang, never lost his taste, never lost his saltiness? Isn't it your experience, my Christian brothers and sisters, that the gospel still has a bite? Maybe you don't feel it at uniform intensity, but there are those glimpses, right, where all of a sudden, through all the blandness, all the darkness, all the fogginess, all the cloudiness, there will be a bite of the gospel in your life. And it will enhance everything it touches. Is that not your experience? Jesus' Power, the gospel's power, does not diminish over time in the life of his disciples. It gathers, it grows. And that light that Jesus is, he is the light of the world. This is his portrait. Our mission is a function of who he is, who he is in us. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, a cross. The cross on the hill outside Jerusalem is not hidden. It's there, and from that place, think about it, friends, the entire world changed because of that one light. The entire history of the world has changed because Jesus wasn't hidden under a basket. The light of the world put Himself on that cross to shine in His glory as the crucified servant of God and to offer Himself to all the nations and to all peoples as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of their world. And the world's destiny has been changed. And that light still shines. Oh, men have tried to put it out. Men have tried to hide from it. Men have tried to bury themselves in darkness. They've tried to cover Jesus up in darkness. And John, what John says in the fifth verse of his first chapter of his gospel is still true. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And friends, it's still shining today. Jesus still has that power to save. He still has that willingness to save. He still has that preservative saltiness to arrest decay and to defeat death. And He calls for our faith. He calls for your faith, your repentance today. And offers Himself to you in all of that power. And so I've gone over the boundaries into my next point. 
It's not just that Jesus has a vision of the world and Jesus has a vision of his disciples, but he has a vision for his disciples. Let's think about this. He says twice, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. See, your identity has a purpose. It's supposed to affect the world. Just as my life, Jesus is saying, is bound to the welfare of the world, so the life of my people is to be bound to the welfare of the world. Bound to it. And I think that that explains why Jesus gives the warnings that he gives. And sometimes you read these warnings and they sound ridiculous, right? What do you do with salt that's no longer salty? I mean, that's, that's an absurdity, isn't it? And you don't light a lamp to cover it up. Seems so obvious, right? So what's he doing with those illustrations? He's saying... He's saying, my disciples, the whole point of my life in you is so that it will be about more than you. I am blessing you. This is an echo of the, the God's covenant with Abraham, isn't it? And I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. Or even what he said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God blesses his people, so that we will be a blessing. That blessing is not a, it's a waterfall. It's not a shower that's supposed to go over us and then go down into the drain beneath our feet. He intends it as a waterfall. This is how God has always done things. And there are two ways to go against the grain of what Jesus is saying here. One, and, 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 and at some level, I think we probably all feel these temptations. The first temptation is to withdraw from the world. It's not hard to look at the world and to see the same things that Jesus sees. A lot of darkness, a lot of harshness, and to react self-protectively and to kind of hunker down, circle the wagons, and to withdraw from the world. And, and in a sense, to have this view of the world that essentially repudiates it and says, listen, I'm wiping my hands clean. Um, go, you know, you, if you would just listen to God, everything would be okay. But since you're not going to listen to God and you're not going to humble yourself, I, listen. And Jesus' vision here doesn't really leave room for that, does it? It's interesting. It's very, I understand why that, that approach to life is attractive. It's very simple. Right? It's a black and white rule. But friends, it's so naive. It's so naive. Because... Because it assumes that the the reason you withdraw is because there's danger out here. But you know what the greatest danger in my life, you know what the greatest threat to my purity and my fidelity as a Christian is? Do you know where it is? It's not out there. It's right in here. It's in my own heart. Hello. Jesus uh, teaches, Jesus has a view of man that's very contrary to ours. We tend to think the way the Pharisees think. That what's outside of a man is what defiles a man. So if I come into contact with things out here, they'll make me dirty. But Jesus does this, uh, you know, gospel judo thing on the Pharisees in Matthew 15. He just completely flips it around. They criticize him and his disciples for not washing their hands when they go into the market. And he says, are you kidding me? 
It's not what comes into a man that defiles a man. It's what comes out of a man that defiles a man. Because it's out of the heart that come evil thoughts and thefts and adulteries and murders. So if you withdraw from the world, it's not only disobedient, it's futile. Because your biggest problem is always portable. Inside of you. The second temptation is to drift from the world. And I have to confess to you, I'm guilty of this. It's very easy to let the momentum of life, especially inside the church, carry you away from regular, sustained contact with non-Christians. It's very easy to be passive and disobedient. And this is a great sin in my life. I do not spend enough time with non-Christians. I am not leading you well in this area. I cannot say to you, look at my life and follow me in this area. I cannot say that to you. That is a, a matter of great pastoral unfaithfulness on my part. It's, it's unfaithful to you because it's unfaithful to my Lord. It it conveys to you a false vision of the Christian life and distorts your vision of Christ. And my job is not to do that. It's to do the opposite. And so I ask you to pray for me. And I ask you to hold me accountable in that area. I can't say, you know, when I thought about this over the last several weeks as I was anticipating this message, I thought, well, you know, that, that my, my defense attorney rises up in my own heart and says, yes, but listen to this, listen to this valid defense. Uh, you're so busy. Whatever. I have the time. I just choose to spend it on other things. And Jesus is not saying that this is optional for any of us, especially not pastors. So, friends, if you're like me, let it be a spur. If you're not like me and you're already spending a lot of time around non-Christians, then friends, rejoice that God has given you that opportunity. And may God take uh, verses 13 through 16 and may they be a spur in your own life to, to look at embolden your ministry with your colleagues or your co-workers or your neighbors or the circle of friends that you're in. Maybe you're in a book group or something like that. Or some kind of club with non-Christians. And may you be encouraged by that waterfall image to move with a fresh purpose into those relationships. And let's pray for one another in that area and talk to one another about this. Because, again, the water, it's, it's not a shower. It's meant to go down the drain. It's water that's supposed to wash over us and move us toward others and go toward others. And we're supposed to do all this for our Father's glory, not our own. This is not a license, right, Jesus says, to walk around the world and say, Hey, look at us. It's so that people will see your good works, Jesus says. Verse 16, notice what he says. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He doesn't say that everyone is going to see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is not some absolute guarantee that when you do good, everyone is immediately going to start coming to to worship and making a profession of faith in Christ. But what Jesus is saying is if we are faithful to do that, 
There will be some who see. There will be others who see and are moved by our kindness and by the way that we live against the grain of the world's values. And they'll be prompted to ask. And God will be pleased to use that light to lead them to his son. So, two things in closing, two sections in closing. That was all the first point. But the last two are are much shorter, I assure you. So, Jesus calls us, think about the logic and the flow so far of of things. Jesus calls us as his disciples to go into the world. Okay? He's made us salt. He's made us light. And we're supposed to go into the world. Okay, so we go into the world. What does it mean for us to be in the world? What do we do when we get there? Do we just come in and and uh, uncritically go buddy-buddy with the world and just affirm everything that's going on in the world in the realm of men? Or, on the other hand, do we come into the world with just this axe to grind and a hammer and we just smash things and say everything is wrong? No. Remember I said the gospel is going to teach us to reject simplistic solutions? Well, this, when we tease out the implications of verses 13 through 16, I think what Jesus is showing us is that we're going to have to simultaneously be against the world and for the world. Because he is simultaneously against the world and for the world. Think about it. First, against the world. Salt and light are both against the world in a certain sense. Think about it. Salt and light both change the status quos that they enter. Right? Salt changes flavor. Salt arrests decay. It's against those things. Light changes the status quo of darkness. Changes the status quo of blindness. It is against the world in that sense. And so these images tell us that there should be a prophetic character to our lives. There ought to be a bite to our lives. There ought to be a difference to our lives. There ought to be something unique about our lives. Something odd. Something that even subjects us to criticism. Something that certainly subjects us to misunderstanding. Something that certainly subjects us to being misinterpreted. Because there's a certain sense in which to, right, to be salt and light means that we're out of step. But, but what would being against the world look like? Well, I think, it's, I think the way we figure that out is we say, we ask the question, we think about, okay, well, we're supposed to resemble our master. We're supposed to be against the world in the way that Jesus is against the world. Because Jesus was against the world. There are certain things about the world that Jesus feels very strongly about that he's against. He's against the world's belittling of God, for one. He's against the world's enslavement of men, for another. Friends, Jesus is against the denial that human life is eternally significant. And ultimately, right, our guide here is the cross. If you want to be against the world in the way that Jesus is against the world, we have to go to the cross. This is true for every area of the Christian life. It's just as true here. Because never in the history 
of the universe was their critique of the world like the cross. Never has there been an indictment of the world like the cross is an indictment of the world. See, because at the cross, what Jesus is demonstrating is the world's wisdom has failed. The world's goodness has failed. The world's power has failed. And we need to not trust those things for our redemption or for our guidance in life. Friends, we do that by living lives that identify that identify with the cross's critique, not just of the world, but of ourselves first. What it means to be against the world is to recognize that when we come to the cross and we speak to people and we understand Jesus' heart, and what, what it is about the world that he's against, friends, we have to acknowledge that we ourselves first were under that same critique so that we never move toward the world uh, with a spirit of self-righteousness, right? We are the poor in spirit. So we identify with that critique, that againstness, if you will. We embrace it for ourselves first. And we identify with the world's most urgent need, which is, regardless of what the world says, it's not economic recovery. It's not energy sustainability. It's not figuring out whether climate change is true or false. It's peace with God. And that's our value. And we stand against the world also by living and dying in ways that show that this is the world turned right side up, not upside down. That's reality. You know, you've got to decide, are the Beatitudes upside down or is life upside down? Which actually is true as a description of reality? And it's the Beatitudes. Is, is God a servant or a tyrant? He's a servant. Is he good or, or, or detached? He's good. And friends, we've got to be for the world also. We have to be for the world in a way that salt and light are for the world. They preserve things. Salt preserves things. Light shows us things. Light helps us see things so that we can know the truth. And in this, too, we're supposed to resemble our master. We're supposed to be just like him. And if you want to know how Jesus is for the world, you go to the same place that the cross that we went to to know how he's against the world. You go to the cross. Never has there been anything done for the world. Never has there been a gift given to the world that begins to match the value of Jesus' cross. For there, right, God came in His mercy and His grace and He upheld the pillars of the universe by demonstrating His righteousness in Christ's sacrifice, answering His justice, and demonstrating God's love in that very same sacrifice so that He could be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is for the world at the cross. And we have to be for the world in the same way that we have seen Jesus before the world. And that means, friends, that we are first going to be people who embrace the message of God's forness for sinners. And we embrace it for ourselves and for us. It's not a detached confession of faith, but we are repeatedly seeking to be gripped by the wonder of Christ's love for us. And we see it in the cross. We, we, we are for the world by identifying with God's love for men. 
Pick your arch-villain. God loves that person. And not in a hallmark kind of way, but in a way that impelled his heart to send his son into the world to offer salvation to that person. Love your arch villain with the potential of their becoming, by the grace of God, your brother or your sister. And finally, we are for the world by living and dying in ways that show that we know we have in Christ what no one can ever take away from us and what we can never lose, come what may. And to the degree that we are getting that and being renewed in that, friends, that waterfall that comes down upon us will propel us outward and the world will not be the same. Let's pray. Lord, it's a humbling, encouraging, and beautifying vision. Help us to understand it. Help us to obey it. And help us to be the blessings that you intend us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.